Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning Shot. Welcome to Morning Shot. I'm Lin Lee. In recent weeks, a slew of natural disasters hit countries across the globe, from the hurricanes that are still sweeping across U.S. states to the typhoon that battered China and Hong Kong. People and businesses are racing against time to adapt to the effects of climate change as the spiraling costs of extreme weather snowball. Just to put things in context, researchers have noticed that billion-dollar natural disasters in the U.S. alone increased from three in 1980 to 22 in 2020. For more insights on how these disasters can be framed in an economic light, we're joined by Galina Hale, professor of economics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Now, Professor, just this year alone, we've seen a slew of major climate disasters, as well as extreme weather episodes, such as record temperatures. Natural disasters, many driven by climate change, caused global economic losses of, I think, up to 313 billion dollars in 2022. That's according to an insurance broker. I think it's Aon. So, how are these events affecting farmers? Are they causing farmers to lose access to credit? So, there are a lot of effects. So, if you think about what happens to the farms that are affected by natural disasters, there could be floods or severe weather or extreme drought or extreme. Flood; those have potential to destroy the crops. Mm-hmm. But also, even you know, in the long run, you know that we have changes in the average annual temperature, average annual precipitation. So even if the crops are not destroyed, the yields are starting to decline because the crops are not necessarily adapted to the changing weather. And so I don't know if it's true globally, but I have a PhD student who recently graduated, Ted Lu, who showed in his dissertation that at least in the case of California, when a natural disaster hits a farm. The farm is not only experiencing direct losses from that, but small farmers also lose access to bank credit, and that makes it even more difficult for them to rebuild after the disaster or potentially transition to more sustainable crops or invest in some kind of adaptation protection project. So it's in a sense as a double whammy, and it potentially leads to more concentration in the agricultural sector because the large farms are not affected by the loss of credit the way the small Farms are.、Mm, that's a bit worrying for the smaller farmers. What kind of cascading effect could this have on other sectors? So, to the extent that the farms are producing、uh, inputs into the food industry, so the food industry can be directly affected, and the food prices can be directly affected. And we've already seen that the food prices can really change quite a bit because of the supply constraints during the pandemic crisis. We had a different type of supply chain disruption that resulted in quite a bit of a fluctuation in food prices across different countries, across different sectors. But more generally, you know, it's not only farmers that are affected by natural disasters. The industries are affected, the households are affected, and it's not obvious necessarily whether it's worth rebuilding in some of the affected areas after a natural disaster. So that's where the project that we discussed on the location of multinational firms. You know, we're trying to figure out how the multinational firms react to those natural disasters when the location of their affiliate. We see a little bit of outflow of foreign direct investment from countries that are affected by disasters more than others. 
but very little so far. And I think what might be going on is that, you know, the first thing you need to do if you have a factory that's been, uh, you know, damaged by a natural disaster, you might want to put the money into rebuilding and to continue produce that. However, if you believe that these disasters will happen more and more frequently, like you gave us the numbers in the beginning of this conversation, then you might rethink your decision of whether it's worth to even have a factory in that location. And as we see the frequency of the disasters going up, we might be seeing more and more divestment from the areas that are affected more frequently than others. So apart from rebuilding, can you put into context for us what kind of costs are involved when it comes to moving a business because of climate change? So if you're not rebuilding but deciding to relocate, it might be very costly, right? Mm. Because you need to find a new location for the production, which might be in a different country, which might have different laws and regulations and differently trained labor force. And so it's not as easy as, you know, packing factory onto the ship mm-hmm. and moving into a different different spot, which is already very costly. There could be all kind of other costs and potentially even permanent change in the costs if, for example, the labor costs are higher in the new location than they were in the previous location. Is it really realistic, given that most parts of the world are already seeing effects of climate change in one way or another? Mm, It's a great question. So there's quite a bit of work trying to figure out what's going to happen in the next, you know, 50 to 100 years as we see increased effects of the climate change. And some people are predicting a lot of retrenchment from the high-risk areas, such as low sea level areas that are subject to floods towards, you know, higher land. And I'm sure some of that will happen. But I think what also will happen is we need to protect the areas that are vulnerable today. So we need to, you know, think about Netherlands that are, you know, below the sea level, but are actually less, not so vulnerable these days because they've built good levees and a system of protection against the flood. And so we're going to need to see a lot more of that around the world, including, you know, nature-based adaptation projects. In one paper, I'm showing that the housing price decline after hurricanes in Florida Mm -hmm. is substantially less if you have mangrove trees protecting the coastline. Mm -hmm. And the same is, you know, applies to coral reefs. So we have natural protection against those disasters that we will need to be investing in. So that's another way to handle, right, is to... Instead of moving or keep rebuilding your facility, you can invest in some protection and it could be a nature-based protection or some combination of, say, mangrove trees and a seawall and things like that that uh, could then reduce the damages or reduce the frequency of the storms actually affecting the property. Mm, That's a good point, protection of vulnerable areas. Now, this, this green push to reduce the carbon that we emit, will a sudden turn in investment trends away from carbon? carbon industries cause a major financial crisis? Yeah, (laughs) Uh, good question. So we have a push globally to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but it's not happening very fast. And so I think if we keep making changes gradually the way they are, I don't think it's posing a lot of financial risk in the near term. That said, if, say, the policymakers, 
you know, get together at COP28 in Dubai in a couple of months and decide to put, say, $200 carbon tax globally, that could cause a major disruption in financial markets because a lot of financial institutions are invested in assets that, you know, would lose value because of the carbon tax, the fossil fuel-related assets. Uh, I don't think there's a high probability of this happening, but uh, it's a hypothetical. Okay, we'll have to wait and see what comes out Dubai later this year. Are we thinking enough about climate-related risks in the context of monetary and financial policy, though? So I think a lot of central banks in particular are now taking climate risks very seriously. There is a network for greening financial system, which is a network of central banks, and most central banks in the world are subscribers to that network. And they have working groups on financial stability and working groups on macroeconomy. And so they're really trying to figure out how monetary policy and bank regulation should be reacting to those risks. So I think enough attention is paid to that. Uh, And a lot of central banks now do climate stress testing to really figure out how banking systems are exposed to physical risks, uh, as well as those transition risks in terms of policies. Um, I think we can do more on the fiscal side in terms of uh, helping private investment be directed into new technologies that can help us green our energy sector, our industrial sector, as well as our agricultural sector. So, you know, I know the government's budgets are very limited, but I think there could be some regulation and there could be some, you know, market shaping that could be done to help private sector invest more money into climate solutions. So putting more money into technology to help with things. Thank you so much for your input and your insights today, Professor Hale. Of course. Thank you for talking. We've been speaking with Galena Hale, Professor of Economics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.